Welcome to Hot Off the Press, a podcast that provides knowledge and emotional support for new and aspiring printers. I'm Jillian of Studio Soprano. And I'm Mariah of Mariah Creates, and we are two letterpress printers who believe in sharing our knowledge and learning together. We're here to help bridge the gap between antique printing methods and modern design. So hang up your apron, put down those palette knives, and let's get into what's hot off the press. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to a very spooky edition of Hot Off the Press podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This episode was originally supposed to air on Halloween. It is going to come a little late, but we are still bringing the spooky goosey vibes. Spooky goosey? I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, kicking us off in the best way. I love it. A little bit of of tongue twisters, and yeah, we're getting back into the groove here, you guys. Um, We are. We're getting back into the groove. We still, I mean, it's been a while, but we still have a printer's fair hangover from just like all the awesomeness that has happened, but we are coming to you today to talk about the ghosts of printing past. Well, uh, as I had the pleasure of traveling to Germany this summer, um, one of the stops on our tour of Germany list was Mainz, and I got to visit the museum dedicated to um, someone who is sometimes referred to as the father of printing, uh, Johannes Gensflesch Zerladen zum Gutenberg. Yay! That was way better uh, than I would do. <laughs> that's a that's a mouthful. Um, we will be referring to him as either Johannes or Gutenberg from here on out. But um, a little about his like history and his life, um, a brief overview for you to begin. So uh, he was a German inventor, publisher, and goldsmith throughout his life. And he is most most known for introducing printing to Europe with a movable type printing press. So obviously very important to our letterpress history. Um he is definitely credited with being an important key role in the development of the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Age of Enlightenment, and the Scientific Revolution. You know, no big deal, just casual. Um, he's, <laughs> just casually you know, bringing the- knowledge to <laughs> the world at large. Improving the rate of literacy and spreading the information globally, you know, like, you know, small <laughs> things. Yeah. Um, he was definitely not the first person to create movable type. That was a concept that, um, you know, if you listen to our history and heavy machinery episode early on in season one, uh, we talked a little about this, but movable type was actually created in China like 600 to a thousand years earlier than Gutenberg. Um, but Gutenberg was the first European to create movable type. So that's important. Um, in this case, movable type replaced woodblock printing and handwritten manuscripts. So books were made a lot faster Information was more readily available. Metal type was also be able, able to be reused, whereas wood blocks would just one and done. That was the one project you could make with them, whereas metal type, you could reuse it for other prints. Um, so that's, you know, a huge factor. It's more cost effective in the long run, as well as saving time. Um, not only did he introduce this print method to Europe, but he also created a process for mass producing type. And he made an oil-based ink um, a standard for printing books, which is huge for drying time, for smudging and smearing and all of that. So um not just the one thing, but let's talk a little about his early life, um, his kind of life story, if you will. So he was born in Mainz uh, in Germany, which is kind of in the Rhine, Mainz early, uh, area. It's kind of near Frankfurt. We, It's like maybe an hour from Frankfurt. Um, as the youngest family of a wealthy merchant, 
Um, some people, some accounts say his father was a goldsmith, which is where they think that uh, Gutenberg got his like goldsmith knowledge. Um, but it's mostly believed that his dad was a cloth trader. So it's hard to know. Um, you know, not a lot of history is really clear. Most of his early life is kind of just a mystery in general. There's even speculation on his birth year, like <laughs> somewhere between <laughs> 1394 and 1400. So just a small gap. I wish there could be disagreement over the year I was born. LOL. Because I very much would like to rewind the times and go back to my 30th birthday. (laughs) Can you imagine if we were just like, oh, no, no. I could be like, oh, no, Jillian was definitely born in, you know, two years later. Like, (laughs) just argue that for you. Yeah. Um, 1988 all the way. 1988. That's the answer. That's funny. (laughs) Um, Well, there are some things that were agreed upon. uh, So, common agreement is that he somehow grew up learning the trade of goldsmithing, which obviously is going to come into play with his metalworking later for type. Um, and then, you know, obviously he's young at this stage, but in 19, in 14, 19, LOL, 1411, mm-hmm. uh, there was an uprising in Mainz and it was against the wealthy, which is Johannes Gutenberg's family. Um, and it's thought that the Gutenbergs and like a hundred or so other families were forced to move to another area. Um, The next 15 years of his life are a complete mystery, Um, but in March of 1434, there's a letter that Gutenberg wrote that indicates he was living in Strasbourg, um, where his family had connections, and he possibly studied at the university there, maybe he enrolled in the militia as a goldsmith, uh, TBD, you know, we'll have to ask him (laughs) if we ever encounter his ghost, but um, somewhere along the way, he definitely was in Strasbourg. Um, there's evidence he was instructing a wealthy tradesman on polishing gems in 1437 in Strasbourg. And then in the same year, (laughs) his name comes up in a court in connection with broken promise of marriage. The drama. Drama. (laughs) I love it because he's not going to be the only printer we discussed today that's got marriage drama. Ooh, I like it. It's spicy. Yeah. Your boys be adding spice. (laughs) Yeah, the like, the like, um, the God, the what is it called? Um, the God complex of like creating printing, you know, it's got to be got to be high. Um, so he is believed to lived in Strasbourg for the next few years. Um, so we're up to like 1440. And this is where he unveiled the beginning phases of his research and develops and developments in printing. And there is some speculation I read that like he may have printed smaller works in 1440 ish in Strasbourg. Um, but this is not where he like, you know, unveils his like big master plan. So there's a gap in his history for a few years from 1440 till about 1448. And then he did in 1448, take out a loan for 800 gilden guilders. I don't know how much that equates to, but whatever he took out a loan. And in 1450, he officially on the record has a printing press up and running. Just so, like that. Et voila. Um, et voila. <laughs> I hope he had like a grand opening. People yeah, lined up outside. Totally. Some snacks, <laughs> some wine, you know, a little mingling. Um, so while he was working on his famous 42 line Bible, which I'll get into, um, there was a quarrel with his creditor, Johannes Fust, who had twice lent him 800 guilders. So he was the loan in the first case and then another loan later for the 42 line Bibles actually. So there was a court case uh, and for reasons lost to history, classic, Gutenberg actually lost this case and had to hand over his entire Bible workshop to Fust and likely the Bibles that were already printed at this point. Um, 
so that's that's big. That's big drama. Um, since those Bibles eventually became his most famous work. Um, later in life, um, he's back in Mainz. Mainz is sacked by Archbishop Adolf von Nassau in 1462, and then Gutenberg's achievements were actually recognized by this Archbishop in 1465. Gutenberg was given a title, um, Gentleman of the Court, which included a stipend and lots of grain and wine, all tax-free. So he got to live out his later years uh, in a little bit of glory, and clearly he came out of this town sacking just fine. So not sure what happened there, but I'm sure it's a good story. Um... He did die in 1468. That is not debated. So clearly that year was written down somewhere. And he was buried (laughs) in the church in Mainz, which has since been destroyed. His grave is lost. So with so many gaps in his history and a lost grave to wrap everything up, it's definitely easy to believe that Gutenberg could still be haunting a print shop somewhere. Perhaps his own. (laughs) Who knows? I mean, right? Doesn't that make him yeah. the perfect candidate for a spooky I mean, he story? may even still be alive. Who knows? Conspiracies. <laughs> okay. You really took that to another level. <laughs> Isn't that the thing we do now? We just assume all dead people are still alive. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> it's so exciting, though. Even with the gaps, I love it. Yeah. It is. Yeah. A, I mean, it's really interesting. I think... It's almost more like a little bit of mystery does like almost more intriguing, right? So like yeah. not knowing where he was for decades at a time is like kind of cool. I don't know. Um, yeah. How many times have we like wished we could just go off the map for a few days? <laughs> like He did it for a few decades. He did it for three decades. I love it. Can you imagine just disappearing off Instagram? Even just Instagram. For, LOL. Like, Instagram week. went down for like four hours yesterday and everyone lost their minds. Everyone was so losing their damn minds. It Myself was included. Let's be real. But um well well, to be fair i wasn't kicked off so i don't think i had the opportunity to freak out but i i don't even know if i would have noticed yeah Um, i literally logged on and saw that it was like my account had been suspended and i like panicked for a minute and then i was like wait this could be a phishing scheme this could be uh just a a block like an outage and i like googled it and it was all over twitter and i was like okay i'm gonna just let it lie (laughs) yeah and a few hours later it was fine so i didn't panic for long but To bring it back to Gutenberg, I am very impressed just the fact that anyone is able to accomplish anything in a time where like there's just random uprisings, like your town is getting destroyed. Um, Promises of marriage are being broken. (laughs) (laughs) And also just the technology, like the internet, like how – how anyone got anything done back in the yeah. day is always very impressive. And the fact that he was just like, do, 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 do. I'm going to pop up now with this like incredible machine that is literally going to change yeah. so much about human culture because now we are printing books and we're spreading the word. And Yeah. I, I also think it's really interesting. So like his press, his like original press was like a book binding press. So it has like the crankshaft that's you know, it comes like those, that technology is developed off of other technology that was used for wine and cheese presses and stuff. So it's like, you know, it all kind of just like snowballs, right? It's like a, it's an evolution, not just like one day he came up with this like brilliant idea. And that was like, the whole thing was his brilliant idea. Like he took pieces from other parts and, and, and parts from other things, which is really, I think what is so cool about it. Like inventing was literally taking whatever you have and figuring out a way to make those things work. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's, I think that's what's so interesting. Like now it's like we can, if we can dream it, we can build it. But in 1440, whatever, you would have had to use literally bits and pieces that you found. Like, and also 800 guilders, whatever that equates to, like 
Sounds like nothing. I'm okay. sure it was a lot then, but like. So currently a guilder is about two. Wait, no. One guilder is about half of a dollar okay, uh, so now. So like what. It's like 400 bucks. Yeah. So what it would be back then though. Like let's just look up like what. What is in $400 or 1440 yeah. That would be about $8,480. Wow. So for $8,480, $8, is that what you said? Yeah. You could create a revolutionary piece of equipment that yeah. <laughs> literally Time changes two. the course of so history. <laughs> for, for a low, oh, yeah, low price true. of $16,000. But, but the first 800 uh, Gilder loan was for like his printing press. The second loan was actually for the Bible project. So that was kind of like a separate thing. So okay. literally that yeah. first 8000 was for like the print shop, printing press uh, situation. So um, yeah. wild. Absolutely wild. You can't even get a Vandercook for that. <laughs> you literally can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Let's talk. Let's talk about the Gutenberg Bible. All right. So <laughs> most people have probably heard of this. I don't know. Had you heard of this before you got into letterpress, the Gutenberg Bible? No, actually, which is really surprising because I did go to a Catholic school and I felt like they tied every possible piece that you could learn about anything, they would tie it back to religion. So there were a lot of things that I learned. But to be fair, I also grew up like an hour and a half north of Philadelphia and was never told that Ben Franklin was a printer. So, <laughs> I don't know if my school, history, just, my school just guess, took a yeah. stance against printing. They were like, we're not teaching any of it. We're, <laughs> we don't want- this is actually a great conversation though. Like I, I, I seriously wonder and – I'm sure there's probably information out there about it, but like, I, I would be curious to see like, was Gutenberg, like, as far as the church is concerned, were they super stoked about this or were they absolutely pissed about this? Because I feel like they would take one of two stances with somebody mass printing a Bible, like even a section of the Bible, you know, it's like, I have a feeling that there were some strong religious opinions about this, but, um, let's talk about it real quick. Let's talk about it. Back to that. Okay. So I'm into it. Yeah. Yeah. So called the Gutenberg Bible now, but it was originally known as the 42-line Bible. Um, It was the first printed version of the Bible that we know of, and it was made famous for that reason alone, but it was also really technical and really beautiful um, as well. So it was like very aesthetically pleasing, and that was like part of Gutenberg's whole like process. He really wanted to look clean and look neat, whereas like handwritten manuscripts of the Bible, every line was uneven, they weren't perfectly justified, etc., um, it's printed in Latin because, you know, it, of the times. Catholicism. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he printed, there's some debate on this. Um, the Gutenberg Museum said 180 copies. I've seen other places say 158 copies. So somewhere around 158 to 180 copies. I am guessing that that discrepancy has to do with the lawsuit with his investor. But anyway, there are around 49 copies that exist today. Some of them are incomplete, but there are like 49 copies that are still in existence somewhere in the world. Um, The first preparations to begin printing these Bibles started in around 1450, and the first copies were completed and sold in 1454 or 1455. So it took four or five years to get them like actually printed, but that includes making all the type and setting all the type and, you know, getting the paper and all of these things. Um, He... 
I think they, I think that it, the paper is believed to be Italian, um, made of linen, and there are some watermarks which makes them believe that it's Italian. So you know, it probably would have taken months to get the paper from Italy all the way up to Germany, right? Mm-hmm. And a single copy of the Bible has about twelve hundred and eighty-eight pages. And wow. let me just re- remind you, this is not the entire Bible as we know it today. This is just a section, I think, of the Old Testament. So, like, it's not like the full Bible that we know now, but it was still 1,288 pages. Um, so why is it called the 42-line Bible? He ultimately ended up printing 42 lines of text per page. And that has to do with, uh, it started out as 40, and they think that somewhere along the process to save paper, he made it into 42 lines. So I love that. I love that, like, mm-hmm. that's something we would totally do in, like, modern modern day. Um but yeah, so 42 lines is literally what number of lines are printed on each page. And so when you look at, like, when you see one of these, we'll post a photo on social media or something, but um, you can see that all of the lines are perfectly justified. So both left and right. And there are like, there's technically four like sections printed on each two pages. Spread. So each page has, yeah, and each spread. Thank you. So when you see it, it's just like very clean and very neat and very organized and every copy is going to be consistent because it's printed. So it's overall just like really beautiful for that reason alone. Um, and everything is printed in like a black letter style. Um, so it's that classic like gothic looking text. It's very kind of graceful and flows really nicely. Um, and I think I saw somewhere that there were like, they had an, like each set of Gutenberg type. You could set like 1700 words or something like that like it was so many like letters I will have to double check that but um either way pretty cool process um and what I found I learned this at the museum in Germany um they have two different copies of the bible there and they're both different they were both purchased originally by other people by different people so these 150 ish copies were sold individually and they were only printed in the black text But when you see a copy in person, whether it's at the museum in Germany or elsewhere, um, they, a lot of them have illuminating and like red text and other things added to them. So that was all done after the fact. So they call that rubrication, the addition of red ink or text and then illumination, which is the gilding, like the gold big letters to start off paragraphs and pages. Mm -hmm. Um, So he printed the main text in black and he left room, not only in the margins, but in certain like at starting of different sections and different uh, pages and chapters, there's room for these big letters to be added in later. And so it really depended on the budget of whoever was purchasing that copy of the Bible. So if it was somebody incredibly wealthy, they purchase this copy of the Bible and then they take it to somebody who uh, specializes in illumination and they have all these incredible gilded letters added to it. And some people who spent every dime they had on this Bible, you know, maybe didn't add anything. So the two copies at the museum in Germany were one was totally added to and beautiful and everything is gilded and the other one doesn't have anything in it. So it's just the black text. So it's really kind of cool to see. So not only did he bring in the movable type, create that proofing press, all this stuff. He also created the first semi-custom collection. (laughs) (laughs) You're totally right. He's the first person to come up with the upsell here's totally. here's the base here's the base the upsell, suite. yeah here are the add-ons <laughs> 
Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. He is the father of so many things right now. And, you know, having researched Gutenberg before, having learned about the Gutenberg Bible at some weird point in my life, I don't know why I knew about it, but I did. And like, even knowing a little about it, I had no clue that that was an after fact. And like, that was something that people added on. And he didn't even handle any of that. It was like, it wasn't, he wasn't like profiting off of those additional services, at least as far as I know or could find. Um, Yeah. But like, he just, he, I just think it's really cool that he thought about that. And instead of like printing the books twice, (laughs) you know, with two different colors, he printed them once and let you add those in by hand. I think it's really cool to think about. And, you know, there are actually a couple of copies that are still bound with like some, most of them have been rebound in the last, you know, 600 years, but there Mm -hmm. are actually a few copies that still have like 14 or 1500 year like binding on them, which is super cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so last fact, and then we'll move on to the next person in history here. But the last sale of a complete Gutenberg Bible was sold in 1978, and it sold for 2.4 million U.S. dollars. Holy crap. Um, That's a a really great return on investment there. If only Foost's family could, you know, get a chunk of that. Um, The estimated (laughs) sale price for a complete copy today, so 40-something years later, is 25 to 35 million doll hairs that is a great return on investment my god so anyway so they're god too (laughs) when so at the museum yeah lol so at the museum in germany this is the last thing i'll say um say all the things yeah okay i will i'll touch on that real quick too okay so the cool like the gutenberg bibles themselves so this museum is a couple stories it's got printing presses and lots of books that are you know from 14 1500 um the Gutenberg Bibles are in a literal safe, like a bank safe, and you are only allowed to go in. You're not allowed to take any photos, and they just like circle people in and out of it. It's kind of like if the Mona Lisa was in a bank safe. Like it's it's so like well protected and and mm-hmm. um you know preserved, and everything is in cases. The lighting is very particular, so it doesn't damage the the works. It's it's pretty cool. It really feels like it feels like you're looking at the crown jewels, you know, it's just incredible. So um, it was a really cool experience overall. But what I loved about the museum was obviously seeing the two different Bibles, um, you know, same but different, right? But they had a lot of European printing presses, which for some reason didn't even like cross my mind when I was going in there. I thought just like, you know, I'd see Vander Cooks and Chandler and Prices or something and maybe a couple Heidelbergs. I don't know. But um, it was all European presses. There were, I don't think there was a single American press in there that I saw. Um, and that was cool to just see other types of presses that we're not really exposed to here in the U S like I, it was really, really unique. Um, and some of the books, you know, that were like either woodblock printed or, uh, you know, hand manu- handwritten manuscripts from 14 or 1500, just seeing them and like realizing that that piece of paper has existed for 600 years is just mind blowing. So, um, yeah, it was really cool. It was very cool indeed. And they did have one Heidelberg. <laughs> <laughs> they had a red ball Heidelberg in the in the lower level. But um yeah, it was a great it was a great stop and they did a little demonstration where they, you know, made a little piece of lead type and then they put it into a form and they printed two different colors and in a big book binding press and all of that. Um and yeah, it was a really like it was a really cool experience. Um, and when you walk like into the Gutenberg Museum, there's like a separate like building that's attached that has um, a print shop. And so they do like classes and demonstrations and stuff in there. And it was so crazy to like the tail end of a trip in Germany where like I speak 
this much German, which my fingers which are is none since you can't see me, people. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I speak this much German. No. So, you know, it's like you're in this country, you don't speak the language and, you know, you've been traveling and you've been figuring it out and it's been all fine and fun. And then you walk into a letterpress shop and you're like, oh, I could do all the things that I'm familiar with in this shop. I know how to do all of this. There's no language barrier to worry about because this is equipment and it's all physical. And like, it was, it was a really cool experience to just be like, oh, regardless of language, I could walk into a print shop with someone who does not speak a single, like we don't speak a single word of the same language and we could, we could print together, you know, like how cool is that? Like it was, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Um, so yeah, it was very fun. Good stop on the trip. Thanks, mom. Um, <laughs> she'll be listening. So hello, <laughs> hello, um, and thank yeah, you. But yeah, yeah, it was that's a cool, awesome. It was a cool stop for sure. So I'm glad we did it. Um, yeah. Okay. Ha- highly recommend. So that's me. That's Gutenberg. Yeah, ten out of ten. Um, and okay. I will post some pictures because I have. I obviously took a million photos where I could in the museum. Um, so I'll post a couple of those so you guys can all see that too. Yeah, maybe we should do like a, a highlighted story. That's a great that idea. That could be saved. Yeah. Yeah. I literally That'd have like fun. 50 photos. So that's a good yeah. call. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I am going to do two two ghosts. <laughs> um, we're moving up the timeline here a little bit. Not we're much, moving up the bit. timeline. Um, they kind of they come one after another, but they kind of fit nicely together. Their stories overlap a little bit. And um, they're fairly quick. I'm sure there's so much more to say about these two gentlemen, but I'm going to touch upon just some of their early history, how they got into printing, some of the shenanigans they got into, and what we got out of them. We love shenanigans. <laughs> we love the shenanigans. Okay. So first up, of course, has to be our good old friend, Benjamin Franklin. Ben. <laughs> so good old Ben, he was born in 1706 in Boston, Massachusetts, here in the United States. Um, his father really wanted him to go into the clergy. Like at 10 years old, his father was like trying to get him into schools, but they just didn't have enough money. Um, so at 10, Ben went and worked with his dad in his tallow and soap business, but he didn't really like it. So he went to his brother, James, his older brother, who had trained in London to become a princeman, which is probably why the family had no money (laughs) to send Ben to to school. Um, but Ben went to James and was like, I want to learn how to print. So at the time, James was running this controversial newspaper in Boston, and he was being told that he wasn't allowed to print it anymore. Like, he basically wasn't allowed to be involved. And so instead of stopping the production of this newspaper, he just had his younger brother pick it up. And so... (laughs) For a brief moment, sibling move, <laughs> right? Like, oh, I'm getting in trouble for this, so you go do it. You're the um, you're the golden child. You do it. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben t- did take it over, and for a brief six months, and it was like a really intensive learning process for him. And of course, he excelled at it because there was like very little that this man did not excel at. But he just kept getting into squabbles with his brother, so he pieced out and he moved to Philadelphia. At the age of 16. So now we're in 1723, Ben settling into Philadelphia. He was a really hard worker. 
He was a good writer. He was very articulate. And apparently he was known for his sound morals. So I don't really know. Like, <laughs> I like that. I mean, that's a respectable character for the most part. Right? Although he did print some sketchy stuff. So I'm curious to know, like, what was the controversy, the controversy around that newspaper? Was it revolutionary propaganda? Because that yeah, makes sense. I mean, I think it was probably a bit of that. And also, I have the feeling the entire Franklin family were jokesters. And I get that vibe. So I have a feeling that there was a lot of, you know, op- strong opinions about different things that were happening, taxation and the relationship to the mother country and like all of this stuff. And yeah. they were just probably writing things that other people were mad about. Yeah, makes sense. Um, but Ben, apparently he was known for his sound morals. So he had a good side to him. He was able to put on the face, and we like that. Solid dude. Anyway, because of this, while he was employed by Samuel Keimer, I'm just guessing on how you say that last name, but I like it. He was employed by Samuel Keimer. Um, a colonial governor approached Ben and was like, will you go to London to acquire more printing equipment? I trust you. You have good morals. I know you won't do any weird stuff take all my money and run (laughs) but here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna send you to london and then i'm going to post to you papers that one is a letter of recommendation so that the people we're buying equipment from know that i sent you and the other one is a request for a line of credit with them he didn't send the papers with Ben. Oh, no. He sent them separately. So sure enough, papers never arrive and poor old Ben gets stuck in London. Doesn't have enough money to get home. Wandering around, luckily, finds a job printing. Um, But that doesn't really get him enough money to, like, get home. So he ends up spending 18 Relatable. months in London. But he is honing his craft. Now this is this is where my fun little tidbit of marriage comes in. <laughs> Prior to leaving for London, Ben is engaged. During this 18-month stay in London because he's trapped there because he doesn't have the money to get home, he writes one letter, one single letter to his fiance oh in which it says he wouldn't be returning anytime soon. That says I, it's literally I like being broken up via text in the 18th century. Yes, I won't. I won't be returning anytime soon. Okay, so he writes that letter. He's still in London, but instead of squandering that time, he really hones in his printing craft and his business skills. He worked for the Palmer Print House and the Watts Printing House. Um, And while neither of those jobs were helping him, like, get the money he needed, they did teach him a lot about business and printing. So, like, that's really important because that propels the rest of his career. Um, He eventually meets a Quaker merchant named Thomas Denham, who was willing to loan him the money to return to Philadelphia, but in exchange for employment. So when he got back, he would have to work for Denham. It took two and a half months to get across the Atlantic. So now he's gone for 20 months, (laughs) plus however long it took him to get there, which I'm assuming is also two and a half months. So let's just say a a cool (laughs) two years. years. Yeah, easy two years. The guy's been gone for two years. He gets home. He finds out that his fiance has married another man. Fair, Fair enough. Fair enough, right? Fair enough. Now, 
The bios that I read just say that her husband ran away. Did he, Ben? Did the oh, husband well. run away? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what happened to your fiance's husband? <laughs> oh, my gosh. No way. So then they get some kind of marriage situation going. Yeah. Where, well, no. So, like, there was a, like, basically an agreement where, like, now they're married, but if this husband comes back into the picture, then their wedding, their their marriage would be null. That's so yeah, weird. They won't be able to get in trouble, you know? Yeah. So anyway, it. hysterical. Strange. So anyway, two years he's working for Thomas, but unfortunately Thomas passes um, due to illness, which is common, obviously, back in the day. So Ben returns to work for Samuel Keimer for a brief time before deciding to open his own firm because, of course, he could do it better. Um, <laughs> in fact, at the time, Keimer was uh, printing the Pennsylvania Gazette and Ben, like, very confidently just purchased that from him, was like, I'm going to buy this. And yeah. So in 1728, Ben starts his own printing firm. He acquires the Pennsylvania Gazette. And um, he did have a partner, Hugh Meredith. And then in 1732, Ben started um, working on the Poor Richard's Almanac, which is something I was familiar with in school. So <laughs> I'm not. Tell me about that. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so the Poor Richard's Almanac, well, first off, let's just start with almanacs in general. They were calendar-based publications that had weather predictions and information and astrological information and important dates and tide information, like information on, like, you know, stuff about the tides. Basically, they were really big in the farming communities. Let's put it that way. Farmers love almanacs. <laughs> but Ben did, like, a twist on it, and it kind of became, like, a piece of entertainment because he would put in like sayings and puzzles and um, poems, proverbs, like all this stuff, some of which he wrote himself. And the things he, like the words he would use, actually got adapted into the common American vernacular. So he was kind of like influencing culture with this publication, which was a very successful publication. It sold like 10,000 copies a like every year um and I know that he published it under a pseudonym that he adopted from like you know old literature Richard Saunders and that's where you get poor Richard from because uh, people are like who's Richard it was just a pseudonym and yeah so that's like the little spiel on huh. the poor Richard's almanac that's so interesting. It's like that's uh, it's just so cool how like some of this stuff just like still exists in one in a different way. It does, you know? yeah, like, in a different way. Yeah, it yeah. totally does. Um, so what I really love about what he did uh with his partnership with the Pennsylvania Gazette and his own printing firm is that he structured the business in a way that allowed himself to be a silent partner. So he wasn't involved with the actual printing. Um, even though he had the skills to be, but he was collecting a portion of the profits. That really set him up for the foundation to be a wealthy man, to get involved in the politics the way that he did, and to exercise his curiosity in um, like sciences the way that we 
eventually know him for. Yeah, that's really interesting. So like he basically was just drop shipping. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. He really he set himself up so that his side hustles could end up leaving a huge legacy. I mean, we all know who Ben Franklin is. And a very little tiny piece of that is the career that he used as a foundation for everything he did after that. Um, also his accounting books were totally impeccable. So we have a beautiful window into what kind of jobs they were handling and at what volume, which I think is really exciting because you think of back in these times, like there wasn't Heidelberg's it's like yeah. shooting off. Everything prints, was handbag, um, yeah. A lot of it was even like probably big book by like book presses. So like, <laughs> right. One, right. one, one page took minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So that is pretty cool. And because of that, if you're ever interested in like the stuff that Ben Franklin's print shop was printing, you actually can look into there's been a whole book written about it where somebody like dives into all the different prints and all this that's stuff. Really cool. Yeah. Just that's based really cool. on like their accounting. Yeah. And what that um, would have looked like and all that. Yeah. That's super cool. Yes. And of course, people have gone around and tried to like collect copies of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think I saw the statistic that for every five things he printed, only like 3.25 are still in existence, which is a pretty good amount. Ratio. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty exciting. Anyway, that's our good old friend, Ben. So like I said, I'm, I'm doing just like short little overviews. We love him. Well, and like if, if anyone is interested in more of like seeing what Ben Franklin's print shop would have looked like, our oh, good yeah. friends at the Print Museum uh, in Carson, California <laughs> have a setup that is a replica of his print shop. So you can go and see what type of presses he would have used and, you know, what the type setup would have looked like in that era and all of that. So um, definitely worth checking out. Yeah. And they're so incredibly knowledgeable about like his involvement and all of yeah, that stuff and totally yeah it's really cool um okay so now i'm gonna jump on to our next buddy all one the way of my to the 1800s wow all the way to the 1800s y'all we're hopping through time here <laughs> <laughs> it's good old george phineas gordon yay yay we love him that name Seriously. sounds familiar any phineas that i've ever heard of gotta love him yeah, it's great. It's a great name. Okay. So George Phineas Gordon was born in 1810. So nearly 100 years after Ben Franklin. This is important because to me, my brain needed to connect that timeline between the two of them. Yeah. Um, because names in the printing industry just get tossed around a lot. So like we have the Franklins, we have the Gordons, and I'm talking about the actual presses, not the yeah. people. Mm -hmm. But it's good to know where the people are spaced out on the timeline. So George was born 1810, almost 100 years after Ben Franklin, in Salem, New Hampshire. And he was educated both in Salem and Boston, where his family lived during the 1820s. My favorite, one of my favorite things about him is that he wanted to be an actor. And so for a brief time, he really, really tried, but he was not making a livelihood and I'm sure his parents were disappointed. And so he went to go get an apprenticeship at a print, a local print shop. So that kind of kicked off his career. And it wasn't long after doing that apprenticeship that he decided to own his own print shop. So I'm really loving that trend too. This idea of like, <laughs> oh, show me how to do this. Oh, I could do this way better yeah. than how you're doing it. 
And opening his own print shop inspired him to experiment with press design because he had this obsession with efficiency and being able to print like higher volumes. And um, he did a lot of card printing. And so a lot of his press inventions were smaller presses, iterations of them that increased the production of card making. Like calling cards and business cards, like right? Like calling yeah. cards, but not greeting cards. cards. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, so the first in the first of his invention was called the speedy card press. Oh, I love it. I love it already. Um, yeah. <laughs> that one was off the record. It like he didn't get a patent for it or anything like that, but just based off the timeline, we know that that was likely his first invention. In Late March of 1850, he filed for and received his first printing press patent for a machine that became affectionately called the alligator. Oh, no, I don't like that at all. <laughs> Do you want to take a guess as to why it was called I the alligator? Immediately, no. Yeah, I can immediately imagine why. But tell us. <laughs> okay. So as I'm sure everyone can already visualize. Anyone who's ever operated a platen press can picture what's about to happen, right? Like, Yes. So as the platen was closing, there was violent snapping, <laughs> violent snapping is the word used in multiple articles that I read. So I believe it. Um, impressively, though, the alligator was a really small jobber and like jobber. This is when jobbers are like people are just constantly reinventing what the jobber is because the public starts to demand more printed goods, right? Like people were coming in and they needed pamphlets for things and they needed, like they actually had interest in buying bulk quantities of paper goods. Well, and I imagine like post office and distribution became more readily available, especially right. in like, you know, you were thinking the Boston area or even in London, like these areas, these cities were developing and they were becoming largely populated and all of a sudden people were a lot closer. Whereas before one copy of the Bible would have been sufficient for an entire town. <laughs> like, yeah, you know? That's true. Yeah, that's really cool. That's true. So, yeah. So, um, Gordon eventually ironed out the issues that w were being experienced by the alligator, but it oh, wasn't wow. – it took many iterations to, to finally get there. Um, yeah, the name is just terrifying. FYI. If we can't continue to plug it enough, the Print Museum in Carson, <laughs> California <laughs> has an alligator on display, but there's also a really good photo of it on their website, and I've linked it in the show notes, and I highly encourage clicking on it and looking at it because if you're familiar with platen presses, most of what most of the machines Gordon designed will surprise you because They've just got weird parts on them that you wouldn't expect. And the thing with the alligator is it's like skinny and narrow, but it's really tall. And it's just got this weird thing on the top that I'm going to assume is for inking. I'm not 100% sure, but it looks like a torture device. Like it's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's called the alligator. It could yeah. be a torture device. <laughs> it could be. It doesn't look like something I'd want to walk into work every day and spend eight to 10 hours with. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So, um, the visual is great. Yeah. It's linked in the show notes. Linking that baby down there. Um, okay. Now we have several iterations of presses followed that. And I'm loving the names for all of these. The Yankee, the Turnover, and the Firefly. 
<clears throat> That's so funny. Um, the That's Firefly. I know, right? The Firefly also is one that looks really wild and doesn't seem like something that would even be efficient to use at all when you're seeing a static photo of it. Um, but because it was designed to print on rolled paper and then that rolled paper would be cut down into the cards, it's able to produce about eight to 10,000 impressions per hour. What? Which is like really impressive. That's more than a Heidelberg. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right. It is more. And I think it's because like the Heidelberg is like pulling like putting the paper, paper down and pulling yeah. it off. And this is literally just like rolling the paper and then yeah. like continuously printing. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's also like, it's like the antithesis to a cylinder press, right? Like, yes. Yeah. It is. I'm doing That's a cool. lot of hand gestures that our lovely listeners can't see, but just imagine rolling <laughs> and, then, and then printing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, they'll get it. They'll get it. They'll get it. Okay. So I've also linked a photo of that in the show notes. Cause like I said, you look at it and you're like, there's no way this thing is any but efficient. It looks cute. It looks like something that would sit in a corner and maybe you're going to print like a thing a day on it. Um, but that bad boy was cranking it out. So I also love, like, not only does it look cute, but like the name Firefly is like cute. It's like very cutesy and like <laughs> really yeah. it's like, it should be named something more aggressive. <laughs> right. Okay, so finally in 1858, he introduced the Franklin Press, which of course we've talked about in our Platinum episode. Um, This is the model that the Chandler and Price and the future Challenge Gordons were modeled off of. It's the classic Platinum jobber with a big old flywheel on the side and an ink disc with rollers that come up and down and a clamshell. But the biggest change with the Franklin Press was that um, the clamshell was now opening on cams and so it actually allowed that delay so the lagging that you experience on platinum presses today that keep your fingers from getting slammed like they're being chewed off by an alligator was established in the franklin press so thank you for that george our fingers love you um by far the best tidbit about the franklin press though is that um gordon claims that ben franklin himself came to him in a dream and showed him how to design it. I would love for Ben Franklin to come in a dream and tell me how to design something new. That'd be really cool. Like, right. (laughs) There's a lot of speculation that just because he was a very spiritual person, he just like made up that story because there's a clear evolution, not only through his presses, but through other machines that were coming online at the time. Like the Franklin press was just the natural progression. Yeah. Um, But we'll give it to him. Ben visited him in a dream. I love that. Showed him how to do it. Um, (laughs) So yeah, George mostly designed. Okay, so he built more than 100 kinds of presses in his lifetime. He was just iterating those things like nuts. And he would design them and have other people manufacture them for him. But when he got closer to the Franklin, which was a press that became like a standard in all print shops, he actually opened up his own manufacturing plant in Rahway, New Jersey. So that's pretty exciting for him, except for the fact that he died shortly after. And then I think they let their patents lapse, or maybe they didn't even patent the Franklin. I'm not really sure what the issue was, but basically all these other companies came in. 
Hello, Chandler and Price. <laughs> Hello, Chandler. We're looking and Price. at you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just need to finish Gordon's George Gordon's story with a little side note that we did cover an episode, but it's confusing AF. And until researching for this episode, did it all become clear as day to me? So Gordy, my press, is a challenge Gordon, but he was not made by either the challenge company nor by George Phineas Gordon. Like, neither <laughs> of those people made my press. Um, he was actually right in between those two eras by Schneidevin and Lee. And I'm probably butchering their name, but I mean, to be fair, like to yeah. it's got a lot of letters in it. It has a lot um, of, of letters. There's a lot of letters. <laughs> <laughs> so I found a beautiful summation of the Schneidevin and Lee uh, story that was on Briar Press. It was posted by Devil's Tale Press. So thank you so much for sharing this. I am actually just going to read it word for word. They get full credit. But this really summed it up well with years that helps you like realize the gaps between all these companies. So Schneidevin and Lee started as an electrotype company in 1870. They survived the Chicago fire in 1871 and soon after decided to produce machinery for printing and engraving industries. So SNL, which we're going to call them because it's way easier to say, yeah. SNL and challenge presses were produced from 1884 to 1893 when the partners ultimately separated. So Paul Schneidevin continued to sell printers and engravers machinery under his name. And then James Lee moved his operation to Grand Haven, Michigan, and he started the challenge company. So that's actually when all of the challenge equipment started to be produced, like under the challenge company and they still exist today and they still make machinery. Um, and they also continued to make the challenge press until 1910. Very cool. Gordy was made, um, in 1887. So he was actually made under that SNL original company. Cool. So he came it from is, Chicago. He did come from Chicago. Yes, he did. And yeah, so thank you so much, Devil's Tale Press, for like tying that up. And that is the story of George Phineas Gordon. Awesome. Well, that was fun. A little trip down memory lane, I guess. Um, maybe we'll be, maybe we'll have dreams of, of Ben Franklin and Johannes Gutenberg and <laughs> George Gordon. <laughs> and maybe they'll well, inspire us to build a new press of some kind. <laughs> Just kidding. The, no, hope, I don't the that. hopes that would be like that lot. they'll come and haunt us all and give us their brilliant ideas. Yes, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I wonder, like, what what do you think Ben Franklin would be printing today? Um, absolutely political things. Are you kidding me? Like with the state of politics as they are, <laughs> I can only imagine he he is actually rolling in his grave right now. <laughs> I know exactly what Ben Franklin would be printing. He would be printing tweets. He yes. would literally be taking tweets and just making a publication of them and then having wild commentary on them. Basically a paper form of Reddit. I kind of envision like the New Yorker cartoons. That's yeah. what I picture him like printing. Like, yeah. You know, like a little snarky, but relevant to like society and political things and events in the world and all of that. I, I, feel, I feel like that would be that'd be what I picture. Ben Franklin yeah. would just be the New Yorker cartoon section. <laughs> and if Gutenberg or Gordon were still alive today, I feel like we wouldn't have to be like digging through scrap piles and 
Craigslist and eBay to find print good printing presses. Yeah. There would still just be manufacturing of new and exciting printing presses. This is a an immediate request for challenge to continue printing. They probably still have patents and things, you know, like they probably still have the pat the patents and the information and like all that stuff. If they don't, then that's a shame. But um, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Well, that was more fun than it was spooky, but to be honest, I enjoyed it. Par for the course, yeah. <laughs> par, par. It's okay because, you know, it's it's totally appropriate for the, the time and, and everything. So, um, yeah, well, hopefully you all learned something and uh, had a good laugh with us because, you know, giggles galore. But, um, yeah, I think it's fun to learn kind of like where these things come from and relate you know modern things to their origin in 14 or 1700 you know I think it's really cool to look back on those things and realize we're still doing a lot of that stuff (laughs) yeah I think that's that's always interesting to me so it was really hard to for me at least to pick who I wanted to cover on this episode because I do feel like Ben and George are like really obvious choices but I wanted to cover their stories and then I hope in future episodes we'll dive into maybe the less known people who have contributed wildly to yeah the pr- the printmaking industry and so listeners if you have a favorite historical figure from our field or tale from the past <laughs> please let us know because we would love to start covering some of the people i like i feel like i am a perfect example of we talk about so much stuff that should feel like almost common knowledge and I learn about it on our podcast. So. Yeah. I know. We learn we learn so much from this podcast, I swear. Like if nobody else learns anything, at least we've learned a lot. I um, yeah. Every every episode we do, I'm like, wow, I am a little bit smarter today. Yeah. Oh man. Okay, so why don't we really quick jump into our favorite segment? Printmas. Printmas. So this week, we want you all to tag us in your – Halloween is over, right? We're ready to move yeah. straight on until till the holidays. So we want yeah. you to tag us in your upcoming holiday designs, whether you're still sketching or drawing those out, <clears throat> me, um, or if you're you know already selling them, Cara Jo, then tag us in those. Yes, yeah. I've seen some people launch theirs today, and so I'm really excited. Tag us so that we could share you, but also yes. so that you can enter this week's Print Miss Giveaway – which is a 2023 letterpress printed calendar that I have created. Yay! Yay! For it's like actually physically available, but you're going to get the first copy. Um, And it's going to be really fun. I have a couple different themes, so you'll get to pick from two different calendars. And um, yeah, it's going to be really fun. So all 12 months printed on cotton paper and with a little stand for display. So you'll have a little desk calendar for the new year. Yay. I love having cute little calendars around. I know. Jillian will get the second copy. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. You have to tag us to enter the giveaway. (laughs) Yay me. Oh, I'll I'll tag you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So uh, tag us on Instagram. We are at hot off the press pod and uh, we will reshare anyone who tags us, but um, we also will enter you in the giveaway for this week. So yay. Yes. And I love that this, this week's entry thing is such a good way to like share you our listener it's a good way to share your work because we'll share it hopefully other people will share it and like I 
ever since the printer's fair and like getting all these goodies and Mariah just hung up all of her posters in her workspace and it's so great. There's like nothing I want more than to surround myself with works from people in this community. So please post, please tag us so that we could even shop your stuff. Like we're so excited for all the good things that everyone is making. I love it. Hanging up all my stuff from the printer's fair in my shop only reminded me that I have a lot of other space to fill. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm on the hunt for other fun things. Um, So yeah, we are excited to see what you guys are creating and it doesn't necessarily have to be letterpress. Um, It could be any, you know, production method, but um, yes, tag us in it so we can see and we can cheer you on and, and uh, root for you in the comments and uh, all of that. So yay. Yay. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. Yay. Thanks, guys. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Awesome. You know, though? (laughs) Johannes Gensfleisch is translated to English as gene meat oh yucky we won't be translating that for the for the pod (laughs) okay